Hello and welcome to Pitstop Conversations, a place where we bring in various experts, various uh, people in who are have achieved something great in their own field, and they share their experiences, they share their journey, what they did and how they achieved to reach where they are, and we learn from them. So uh, this podcast is emphasizing on learning from people who are our guests on the podcast. So my guest today is somebody who is a social entrepreneur and uh, what that is, is the something that he's going to tell us. He's a social entrepreneur, he's a mentor, he's a behavioral finance coach and uh, a whole host of other things that he keeps on doing. So let me introduce Midhun Noble. Welcome Midhun, thank you so much for joining me today and uh, it's, it's a great pleasure to have you on our show today. So we would uh, like to begin with first asking you, what exactly do you mean by social entrepreneurship? Um, thank you, Vishaka. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think social entrepreneurship is a very, like a very complicated word. People use it uh, loosely in a lot of context. Uh, but I would probably, like, I mean, probably for me, the best explanation was given to me by Mohammed Yunus. I think when he came to Bangalore, I had a chance to meet him. So he said that a charity dollar has only one life, right? But a social dollar has multiple lives. As it, like, you know, as it, you're creating some value and then you're creating some profit, which is again reinvested to create more value to the society. Um, and to be honest, like every business uh, does create some impact, right? At the end of the day, it's solving some problem in you, and that's the reason why you're paying some value for it. Uh, but when you look at social enterprises, they are probably solving uh, an area which probably was neglected by the mainstream business community, probably due to the fact that it may not be that as profitable as uh, as the other one. I mean, we are yet to find a billion dollar uh, social I mean, social enterprise, to be honest, right? Uh, but at the same time, uh, if you look at edtechs, like you say, Baijus, Baijus is solving an, uh, like a huge, a huge problem in the education space. So you can call that a social enterprise somewhere, yes, right? But uh, again, like for example, uh, in Indian context, what you say is like, there has been a shift from the charity model, like you know, what NGOs has been doing for a longer time. Um, there have been uh, like small startups and uh, businesses which started coming into that space, started solving that problem with uh, a lot of little bit of technology, a bit of capital, uh, and a bit of saying that like you know, if I am offering you the service, I also find a means to be paid for it, right? Uh, it may, may not be charging them, saying uh, like exorbitant fees or keeping my profit margins at 60, 70 percentage. I might keep a small uh, operational profit or what you call as a social my capital for myself. Uh, I might generate more returns, but at the end of the day, I'm in back, like investing that money back into the community, right? Uh, I have to improve the quality of whatever that space is. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So basically, it is entrepreneurship. You are doing something for the community and it is based on social service. It is, but it is not being done for free, yeah. right? There, there is certain remuneration that you are looking through it and not for the purpose of just making a profit, but putting that profit back into helping the society right. again. So you can also, it can also have a slightly skilled model as in like, you know, say, uh, if I have, for example, like look at my own audience, right? Like I work with children with autism. So there can be parents who can afford to pay 25, 30K a month, but there can also be parents who can uh, who cannot afford to pay at all, right? So how do you probably build a scale where you have people paying at different levels, but ensuring that your service reaches to a different strata of the people? 
right so you have uh, you basically use a sliding scale model or you have like a, for example uh, you have your body called as a tire pricing model like you know they pay you uh, some kind of a smaller price now uh, and based on when their income improves they start paying you uh, like a better income like you see that with a lot of agri tech startups like you know they probably give the money up front and then as and when the farmer is making the returns they start paying uh, them more and more money right uh, the problem with ngo dollars is the thing that like you know most of the systems are not very efficient Uh, like you know, let's say if a charity is working, right? So they probably have a donor, they have probably have a funder, and they basically raise for a particular instance of the money, right? Like for example, they need uh, this much of money for this particular thing. But what happens to the money that is given to them? Whether that money goes into some kind of an action, uh, what is the result out of that pipeline? Like you know, whether that is creating a positive social dollar, right? So that uh, is often missed. But now you see, like you know, even uh, uh, even organizations like charity entrepreneurship, right, who are focused on metrics, who says that if I am giving you even money as a charity. you need to put it in uh, a place where you are able to generate some returns so i see that shift uh, and that shift is good in the long run uh, but at the same time like you know if i go to vc and i tell my numbers like i come from banking so if i go to vc i tell my numbers the vc last me like i i don't see a 50x or 100x in this right like with this what you're trying to do but yeah that is true you can't do a 50 or 20 like 50 or 100x but you can always do a 3 or 4x in this right at the same time creating uh, an impact for the community that matters who has been neglected by the other community and they are not coming to this space because it's a 4x game it's not a 50 or 100x game and they are just staying away so only people like uh, people who are really motivated to work with this community who has some relation to the community uh, they come into the social entrepreneurship and an ngo space i think i have, i have a balance of both so i also believe that you can have a hybrid model where you have an ngo plus uh, a social enterprise so i have both like i, I have an inside which is a private limited company i have all inclusive foundation which is a registered ngo uh, but both of them serve two different purposes like for example even now even in my space for me to enter into different venues it has been what you call as blocked by the ngo space like you know for example if i want to apply for a government grant or a government project they only give it to ngo right despite uh, social enterprises being there um so how do you crack that so then you probably need an ngo to probably get that funding but then you again use your value metrics use your same decision making same business model to drive that change in that particular community okay so if i understand it correctly in a nutshell what you're trying to bring about is a business mindset or a business orientation to the ngo space kind of if i look at it at a very broad level uh, in the sense the work that is being done by the ngo and uh, the business aspect of it the way it should be run more like a business enterprise rather than uh, like you know just as a ngo uh, uh, that is running just purely for the sake of social service you are combining the best of both worlds and trying to bring about a change in the way these things are being done today yeah absolutely right so uh, yeah so you you also you mentioned while you were explaining you mentioned a couple of you know uh, things that you are involved with and i did not especially specifically in your introduction i did not mention all of them because i want you to talk about them so can you tell us a little more about the different ventures that you are associated with and uh, what each of these do in the social enterprise uh, space uh, so presently i am uh, running two organizations so one is called insight so insight basically works towards providing special needs care right uh, at home and in schools so what i have noticed that a lot of children get kicked out of schools uh, for due to um, like uh, probably saying you know like they are not able to uh, have a shadow teacher or somebody accompany them to school uh, because when you come to regular typical school setups they actually i mean even if the school wants they are limited by the infrastructure that uh, i mean they can bring a child with autism or adhd into that classroom 
so we uh, so i like first first time when i when i started this like we started like a proper mental clinic like along with the professor from college but then we had two three parents who approached us said that like you know my kid is kept out of school i need to find a special school and all and my question was like you know it doesn't really, i mean the child can actually fit into a uh conventional school like why are you taking him out of it and saying no they insist that they must be shadow teacher so that's in the first time that i looked at the space and then i realized like okay like currently all the shadow teachers they are giving are somebody with a 10th standard or 12th standard pass or somebody with some degree right but what happens is like they end up being like a maid or somebody who just be with the kid in the class and that creates more dependencies in the long run so we realized like you know if i'm doing behavior therapy at a center uh, expecting the child to be independent why can't i do the same thing in the school setting at the same time like you know talking to the teachers talking to the principal talking to the whole school system and helping them uh, include this child in the classroom so it started like as a very small pilot project uh, but over the period of time like you know we we saw like the, even even now i have not solved the problem completely uh, but i know for a fact like you know we have been working with all the 2025 schools uh, and probably put our 100 plus children in uh, different classrooms um and there have been cases where like people have been successfully able to integrate the children into classroom and what of it right uh, and then i realized another major thing that happened during covid like in 2019 when i shifted to this i realized that the centers were shut uh, the schools were shut and these kids uh, are mostly excluded from uh, online classrooms i mean uh, you know for a fact like even in a regular typical classroom they struggle to integrate and uh, coming to an online classroom children they really don't have attention span children with autism uh, they're probably struggling to uh, like you know adapt to that setting itself Um, and they were just stuck. Like, you know, the parents were literally stuck with these kids at houses. So then we thought, okay, why don't we start sending our people to their homes to start supporting them from their homes? Okay. So we started doing shadowing in the beginning from homes. Then we started doing behavior therapy. We started doing OT. We started doing speech. So we we built a whole suite of services at home. So for me, it has always been from the community that I realized that okay, they have a particular need and there needs to be a means to solve it. And then I go back to my whiteboard and see, okay, this is how I can solve it. So that is how uh, Insight has been doing. um so uh, another thing that i ran is another organization called all inclusive foundation which is started with uh, i mean three profound ladies so one is from the qr space one is from uh, the child rights space and another one is a parent of somebody with autism so uh, they basically were starting a ngo and they were like you know we wanted somebody to have some understanding of finance and some kind of an organizational skill to join us uh, so in all inclusive foundation we basically focus in terms of uh, broadening like what i've been doing i've been very much focused on with the special needs community So, the Olympus Foundation we include uh, we include the gender minorities, we include the uh, marginalized caste, we include uh, like uh, even people from the different marginalized sections in the society, other ways, right? So, uh, it has always been about broadening uh, and improving the employment outlook uh, and also enabling the environment to understand them better. Like for example, uh, we realize that the problem is not that like we cannot like see. I mean, if I need some accommodation in a particular setting, you can't come and alter me. I mean, what you need to do is you need to alter that environment. Say, if it's a museum or a zoo or even if it's a public park. You need to alter it in a manner that anybody with uh, needs can walk in. Right? I can just demonstrate by saying something. Okay, so recently I went to a brigade property to visit, and uh, because I went there, he said to me, like, you know, uh, this is a senior citizenship property, and you don't look like a senior citizen to me. Okay, so then then I was like, okay, tell me the features over there. Then there then he was telling me like there is antiquated uh, tiles, uh, there is railings, there is there is that, uh, and like you know, uh, there is an alarm for people to press, uh, like if there is something in there, and. Mm. Uh, there is a small clinic in the space and everything. I'm telling you, this is what every residential society should be having. It, it, it is not saying this is a senior care facility, care housing space or something. Even if at my age, I would prefer some place where I know that I am safe and I have all these things to prevent me from falling or you know getting help when I need it. So why don't you build everything for them? Like you know, why don't you build everything for uh, this community instead of trying to just doing it for like a, like like say okay, these guys want minimum scope of this, so we'll only build the minimum. 
go for the uh, go for building everything with an inclusion in mindset right uh, and the example like in probably make out of this is like say in banks so when we make any banking documents like you know if you go to uh, people with disabilities always struggle in filling any forms not just disabilities people who have like limited uh, like i mean what do you call as language capacity like say somebody knows only uh, english they don't know hindi right um, they walk into a, a bank or most probably they're going to struggle to fill any of the forms and the reason is that like even if you fill the forms what these guys do they just scan it as a pdf and upload it so it's again accessible for someone with disability and these guys spend like time like n number of times making you correct your grammar like i used to work in a bank so they used to make it like n number of time make you correct the grammar this thing spelling everything in a letter instead of that why don't you make udl documents why don't you make documents which have universal design language space right so that it's accessible for everyone so that is a kind of shift that we are trying to push using all inclusive foundation so yeah so these are the two things that i mean i mean like there are other things in the pipeline but i think like well i will let it be over there okay but that's so awesome you you are actually looking at the problems that exist and we all see them mm-hmm. in front of us it's not that uh, these are not something that are visible invisible to people but you choose to do something about it and that's so fantastic that's really creditable i mean <laughs> kudos to you for that honestly so in in uh, insight what you're looking at is supporting all those children who are having special needs and many schools like uh, in fact uh, what i have observed is even schools who claim to be inclusive schools do not have the kind of necessary uh, support or infrastructure in place to support these people and uh, you know support their needs special needs that they require in terms of getting an education so providing them with that kind of support is something that is really wonderful and plus as you rightly uh, you know looked at it in the from the point of view when it was came to the pandemic and learning online which for everybody was anyway a challenging thing and especially then if you are having some kind of challenge existing within you already then definitely it is something that is you know very very difficult and um, getting an education sitting in front of a screen and uh, not uh, you know having any interaction or understanding anything that is going on definitely very very challenging so really appreciate that effort on in insight and uh, again uh, even the all inclusive foundation that you talked about like you're not only looking at diversity in terms of you know those who are having special needs you're also looking at uh you know people who have who who are or uh, who are around us like you know language like you said is such a simple problem that we perceive in our daily lives and yet we choose to ignore it or we it doesn't just register but you choose to do something about it you know and looking for a solution i think that's something really really wonderful that you are doing midun so uh, i now want to ask you what what attracted you to become a social entrepreneur was it just an observation or what happened around you that kind of you know made you feel that this is the area that i want to make my life in i think i'm still struggling to fit in into the space uh, because like you know so when i come to the space i see two kinds of people right one is a set of people who probably uh, are coming from the ngo space like who believes that we want to create uh, i mean i see when i say ngo i'm not demeaning anything right but i'm just saying like you know they come with the mind mindset saying uh, we want to uh, like create an impact but they have one like fantastic ideas they probably can do really one on one with one person uh, kind of a model right but they will never they cannot think about scale right? they cannot think about scale saying you know if i can solve this particular person's problem mm-hmm. can i create a blueprint of it and then can i with the individualized uh, requirement that is required for another person 
can i do it for another person right so often this particular thing is missing or they think that like no they are uh, well educated enough uh, they have like a phd they have a doctorate they have this uh, so uh, like now what they want know they want to teach the people right so the main difference in social enterprise is that you can't do that you have to look at what the community needs you have to look at like what this person needs and then you go with the solution for it right so there is a lot of personalization there is a lot of customization but it is not your expertise that you are selling over there you are trying to help the person with something they need right that's a simple difference so for me i think like you know my grandfather uh, is also a classic case like me so he had run about 15 20 businesses he he will build something really well then he will flop Uh, then he lose all the money. Then he will do something else. So he has done anything and everything from uh, like you know like what he calls red bricks business to uh, selling oils to having a tea shop to different things. So but for him it has always been about saying okay in my uh, so tomorrow he wakes up and realizes okay I, I, somebody near my house uh, like I, he he wanted to get a massage but he is probably not getting an oil. Tomorrow he finds some start an oil business. He will be like okay like, a lot of people would need this let me go start. Right? He was not doing any market validation none of the market studies and everything. But I think I've seen him all my life. So it has been like you know for me also the trigger is there uh, and like you know that particular line of thought for me is that if I see a problem I'll always go back to my whiteboard or probably use an oil snot to look at it and say. how do i solve it i don't really go and crib about problems like if i see something say okay it's not working it's not working my brain is always very solution focused say okay how do i solve it right now like how do i work on this so that like sometimes what happens is like i know like i will ideate a lot of things i mean that is part of my idea also i ideate a lot of things lot of things don't finish but if some but what has happened for me in the long time is like you know somebody else will also be thinking about the same thing right and they will come and tell me yeah. i'm facing this particular problem what to do with this and then bro i've thought about this sometime back and this is what it can be done right and i've seen a lot of solution like that which i put in my notes being implemented by other people which also gives me that kind of joy saying you know Okay, so it's uh, and uh, and I see anybody can have ideas. Like anybody can have great ideas, and at the end of the day, it's about implementing that ideas. And it's not that's not always that you can implement all the ideas that you have in your head. You need a like a community of people around you who probably buy into the cause or want to do something in their life, like you know, to also start sharing this journey with you. So uh, I, I think you know, like uh, <laughs> I think yeah, I think that is the reason why I'm just connected to the community because I see people around me. Well, more like me who are solving uh, the same problem that I am solving. Like you know, when we are in college, we try to hang out with the people that we like. Uh, but when we probably pass out and we start working, we are in a place where people have different agendas, different goals. And I didn't really connect with them. So for me, when I'm with this community, it's me. For me, it's like back to college. Like you know, I am this with this kind of people who want to solve the problem in the same space, who who with whom I can connect with, whom I can buy, whom with whom I can discuss. So uh, that is also a motivation to be in this space, like you know, instead of leaving this there and going and doing something else. Yeah. Wow. So two things that I picked up from what you described was one is it is in your blood. It's genetic. You have actually kind of inherited it or kind of you know learnt it from observing your grandfather that he all always tried to look at what the uh, problem was in the society around him and how he could solve it. And secondly was your can-do attitude. So instead of just cribbing, because which is most of the population does. they just crib about some problem be existing but you are not looking at cribbing you are looking at what can i do to solve it so that's that's so wonderful uh, another thing you uh, while you were talking you mentioned that you have adhd so for the sake of the listeners so adhd is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder uh, so i wouldn't go into describing what exactly it is but it is something that it has its own set of challenges so uh, but with midhun what i have uh, you know observed you and what i have learned from your posts and all is that you use it as a strength 
so i want to know now is like how are you using your adhd as a strength and uh, then what kind of challenges also does it present for you okay yeah i mean it's a very tricky question like you know i think i would still say i'm uh, still figuring it out like you know as part of my journey right um so um, so for me uh, i think like you know i didn't i didn't get a diagnosis or i didn't probably go for uh, like you know seeing a psychologist like again it was seen as something like a taboo kind of a thing right so the maximum i have gone to is a school counselor who said that i'm a juvenile delinquent okay uh, okay because uh, and today also i just went to my college to see my phd aide so she was also telling me like you know you are the most naughtiest person that you have seen in a college you know so uh, i think that image has always been that sorry, if you are someone who is hyperactive you're not somebody who can focus in the class you're someone who is probably struggling to fit in you are an naughty person right mm-hmm. so the naughtiness uh, is often masked because i was good at studies i was good at sports i was good at organizing stuff like so those ways i had always masked it like i was not uh, so in school i was more of a personal figure like you know i had what you call as uh, most adhd kids have uh, a problem with behaviors like you know they probably tend to resist a lot Uh, and they basically struggle to keep silent when they should be silent like you know uh, the tendency is to always question back like you know that body called the buffer is not there so you go from 0 to 5 so you uh, like what 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 should be thing i am teaching in the class right you know that that will come to my head and i will say it most people won't i mean i'm sure that everybody would be thinking the same thing right uh, i remember like i was like i was almost sleeping in a class and the teacher called me and asked like you know why are you sleeping in the class and um, i said it is boring like you know what you teaching is boring and i will sleep right uh yeah so i mean i was not thinking through it like it, it, it's sometimes difficult as a person but i think over a period of time and with what we call as meditation and all those things i've gained control over my senses and i will always process uh, so i think two two good things that somebody has told me is that initially when i realized that i had ADHD i started using it as a crutch to say this happens uh, okay that's because i have ADHD like no i forgot this ADHD. i still do tell people that i still do uh, but now i see it as a vulnerability that i tell people that i have this problem like i forget many things i forget uh, probably uh, like you know that if i have a long schedule i might get burned out in the middle of it and then i just cancel the whole day right but probably other people might feel okay i mean why did you just cancel me out of it right but i i probably can't like, take that person but i just tell them that, you know today i can't i'm not in head space to do it i don't try to cover it now anymore Uh, but i have seen over a period of time that you know somebody taught me this saying uh, so uh, there is another person with the ADHD who was like my like my coach so he taught me the saying you know so just look at it like uh, from the hunter gatherer theory like you know hunter farmer theory like if you uh, if you are aware of the ADHD space then you would know it so basically they said humans started as a hunters uh, and i mean they were always like you know looking for the next skill uh, and the other times they were just let it be like you know what will happen let let, let let me be whatever it is Uh, and they were always driven by responses like you know they wanted to and they were always prompted with uh, solving something and they were always trying to make a plan to catch something right basically what ADHD person does uh, and most i when we shifted to a farmer like farmer agrarian community people started having more organization skills people started uh, not requiring this kind of an impulsivity this kind of a uh, skill set to be surviving in that so that's why you would see a lot of athletes and a lot of people who are from uh, like you know the from the from the entrepreneurship community with ADHD it's it's all it's also considered as a what you call as a entrepreneurship gene if you have ADHD you are most like uh, uh, something for your own than working with somebody else because you then you build the whole flexibility around it mm-hmm. so for me mm-hmm. when you look at it from the strength point of view what i have noticed is that uh, you are like for example if 10 people 10 of us are sitting in a group uh, from a college and discussing on a particular project right uh, everybody will be seeing how to go up this project step by step right i would already see How this project would be at the end of it, and what would be the result of it, and then I work backwards. 
So this, I, I mean, this I've like later read that this is like an ADHD thing that people do have the thing of that they see the solutions and then they try to turn it work backwards. Uh, that is always him. And even when I was in bank, I used to see that like you know, people will just sit and crib about a particular system or not try to solve it. And I will just try to, okay, let me work from this end to that end. So that solution-focused approach, I think it comes from that ADHD part of it, part of mind. Uh, another thing I noticed is that like I have that hyper-focused states. Uh, which is again very debated kind of a thing in ADHD space, but I know for a fact, like, you know, I can go into that space where I have that one or two hours where I can produce uh, close to six or eight hours that another person can, uh, but I can just finish everything. Mm. So initially, I used to struggle with creating that sprints, and I see my sister struggling with that now, but she is now getting into a phase where she started working and, like, you know, she's just figuring out how to create that sprints. Um, so I have one sprint in the morning, I have one sprint in the night. Uh, and when I need a break, I just take a break. Right? I probably sleep in the afternoon. Uh, like, so I'm not a good, a good employee if you want to hire me. Like, you know, I'll be sleeping in the afternoon at three to five or something like that, right? Because that, that's the rest that I need. Uh, and then I realized that if you have your dopamines higher, like, uh, so I start going for a morning walk and an evening walk. So that my, uh, my, my neurotransmitters are on the higher side when I go for that focus state. Then um, doing brain dumping, so that like you know, like if, if before I do any activity, I'll probably do 15 minutes of brain dumping where I write it down, uh, and then it's an activity. So that way I know I'm reaching towards it. And the most important thing of all is always find somebody else who does what you can't. Like you know, so I think I discussed with you like last time when we had a conversation. So any organization that I have, I have people with whom we are like very very anti opposite of me, who are very organized, who does everything by schedule who does my work. So having a, what you call as a personal secretary or a personal assistant is not only what you get with CEO or somebody can afford, it's something anybody can have, like even if it's a college intern or whatever it is. So I initially started having a college intern for that. Now I have a person for it. They basically schedule my day, they basically schedule, uh, like I hate attending so many calls. So even all my calls, I probably take a screenshot, forward it to her. I mean, I hope any of my customers who are listening to this. Uh, that way I try to manage uh, a lot of those things. Uh, but at, at the same time, uh, there's a lot of empathy also. It's, it's I think ADHD gives you a lot of empathy also uh, because you are constantly uh, having a rush of emotions. Like, you know, um, I can watch a series and cry. Like yesterday I was watching Baba Wallace, uh, I think a documentary on racism and driving and everything. And I was just crying, like, you know, because I was experiencing that along with the experience of a Dalit. Uh, in a different setting, right? So I was just connecting all these things. Mm-hmm. I think probably an ordinary person might be crying due to the emotion seeing on the screen, but he may not be think- overthinking a lot of things. Um, so it actually gives you that kind of a like a higher level of empathy as well. Um, yeah, so uh, I, mean, I think I told my struggles also along the way. So I think, yeah, there are a lot of parts that I struggle with. Wow. So Mithun, uh, what I appreciate about all of this, like there one, you are very open about sharing it. Number two, you do not want to hide behind, uh, you know, uh, the fact that, okay, this is a weakness or this is like you said, you did, there was a period of time where you used it as a crutch, but you realize that, you know, I cannot and I should not use it as a crutch, but I should convert it to my strength. And you also have realized your limitations. Like you mentioned that, you know, if I know that this is not my area of strength, uh, organizing and planning and, you know, seeing three uh, things through, then let me have the support of somebody who can help me out with this. So it's, it's so wonderful to realize that. But I'm sure it must not have been an overnight journey. It must have taken you years of struggle, years of, you know, experimenting. And actually, uh, and especially in a country like ours where, the awareness, like uh, in the beginning, you mentioned that, uh, you know, you were labeled as naughty. 
so uh, the fact that you had something like adhd went unnoticed or it did not really catch the attention and you did not get the kind of specific uh, support that you should have got had people realized it at an earlier age right so uh, and that happens so often that happens so often so uh, and especially for adhd it is always concern uh, you know it's a concern for most people they think that you know adhd people can't focus at all however now uh, if i look at your journey so you have completed your graduation you have done an mba and now you are doing your phd and academics is something that requires hyper level of focus so although part of it you have answered in the last uh, question where you said i create those hyper focused uh, you know sprints but can you a little bit elaborate on this also like you know how is it that you are now managing yourself in the field of academics which is very very attention focused and which is very very it demands a lot from a person and which is a challenge for a person with adhd yeah, I, i think he jumped into phd too soon by the way so i'm still struggling with my phd part of it uh because see uh, okay uh, i i'm still struggling with a lot of parts in phd like you probably need to submit things on time you have rsc meeting happening every three months so i'm just struggling with a lot of systems in that space uh but like for me it's always been the confidence that ye to ho payega like not like i'll finish this like two years three years four years is not my concern right now i'm not driven by saying i want to be the number one in this right so uh, i think a lot of this comes from uh, a very basic ex- experience that i had in school uh where i got kicked out of the school like to be honest i was just dismissed from the school uh in lavender right so and and they said like and then i thought like you know i i and my dad is a father is a policeman right and uh, and i was in a, such a wrong place at that time that i had such like so many wrong influences around me um that i actually thought like you know i, I was inspired by the story of daud ibrahim like you know whose father was a policeman and who ran away from his house and became a gunda right i was like okay fine let me anyway the whole world is labeling me a villain right why don't i go become one and i also look like one so why don't i go become one right so uh, and that and, and i literally thought of running away from my house right but uh, luckily for me uh, things got sorted out and my father was able to put me back into the same school and i had studied in a school where everybody hates me for that one year in that old standard which gave me the perseverance saying you know irrespective of whatever things that happens around me in the system whatever hell go goes through in like, like with around world around me i can survive like you know, I, i think most people learn it little later in their life but that very bad year in school kind of taught me that uh, skill like, you know saying you can survive no matter what because teachers wanted to feed me uh, my classmates were not ready to help me with any assignments i had to submit everything by myself uh and i ended up like having scoring 99 out of 100 in psychology in my t- like in my 12 boards so i was like okay so that was my key trigger saying okay i can survive systems uh but and when i went to christ so christ is really not to be a very academic very strict kind of a college for other people but i realized that see first semester i studied okay i scored some 70 percentile second semester i became a usual self of uh you know hanging here hanging in there and just studying one or two days before that and i scored 65 percentage so i figured okay studying gives you 5 percentage more do you i need that no i just need this much of mark to pass and i don't care if it's a first class second class third class whatever it is just something to pass right so uh, and i just started doing that like saying minimum of if i need to crack something i actually like to make a plan of it like okay, if i need to crack something i need 60 percentage and this much of syllabus will give me that 60 percentage i will not study the rest of it like i will not touch maths uh, that has been my like for example in psych we had stats right so i just remove the whole stats part of it when i did mba i just remove all the stats like the con part of it and this i study the other part of it mm. so even for neat net exam i did the same thing like in for my net exam first time i wrote it i failed because i tried to study everything the second time i did the net i was like okay fine 
This time I'm, I need, I know, okay, net first paper, if you score this much, in the second paper, you're anyway going to score an average, the subject paper. So fine, yes, let's do that. Uh, and then ended up clearing it with JRF, right? So uh, I, I think I know my uh, like limitations when it comes to like doing my studies, uh, but uh, I, I still wouldn't say like, you know, recommend these things to other people because I, I also know for a fact that my IQ is on a higher level. Like, you know, like, um, so that's probably the fact why like I'm able to understand concepts, I'm able to do it in one shot. So, and when MBA I was doing, we used to do all-nighters. Like, when I have an exam next day, I, I'm not somebody who can study for a one month and come and write the exam by finishing the portions. In my entire life, I've never completed the syllabus or even done what it was a revision. Even for my boards, nothing I've done in my life. So, all I do is, like, I probably study, like, five or six days before the exam, if it is for boards. But when I was doing my MBA, what I used to do just before the day of exam, me and my roommate used to play, study one chapter, play one game of FIFA. Study one chapter, play one game of FIFA, so that my brain was having the time to go off and then come back to uh, like you know like he was good at switching off me from the games, and I was good at switching off from the studies. So we both were having that uh, balance and like and I, I could survive the MBA stuff. Uh, PhD, I, I went into thinking it, saying you know okay I'm right now doing something great, let me have like something to publish about it or something. Like that. I didn't go into thinking I want a doctorate at the end of my name. Um, I realized PhD is not technically that. Uh, it's another archaic process where you are literally swim through and you know like do some circus to get out of it. Uh, so I'm not really enjoying it. So it has been quite slow. Um, so yeah, but I, I think like I kept learning all my life. Like I enjoy and enjoy having that phases of learning. Like you know like uh, in every day like if I learn something new, okay. And as long as it excites me, I keep learning about it. Um, uh, otherwise, I just throw it aside. Like it's having like multiple hobbies to learn. Uh, but I think that was also inculcated by parents. My parents literally taught me in a library and was anywhere else you drop me, they'll have a problem, right? So their safest bet was drop me in the public library in the evening and then pick me up when they come back. So I have been in libraries all my life, so I have no resistance to uh, like, you know, read and uh, learn and all those things. But yeah. So Mithun, uh, I mean, now when you talk about this, when you it's like you're looking back and connecting the dots and it, it sounds like a series of successes, but I'm sure there must have been failures also to these trying things that out that you tried about, right, talked yeah. about, like, you know, when you talked about uh, exams, preparing, like, so you and figuring out maybe how much I have to study and all, there would have been misses as well, yeah. right? So not necessarily all were hit. So how did you deal with that? I mean, how did that affect okay, you? So I've not really failed an exam, to be honest. I think I'm just afraid. No, I'm not talking I about failing. Yeah. I'm talking about, you know, emotionally feeling uh, like, you know, oh, I wanted this much but i only got this much say or for example you studied for say 60 and uh, you got uh, say well, 45. That 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 the see? whole thing is surveying the system the whole thing is about you need 40 percentage mark to pass right you need to fall somewhere in the 60 or 70 but you can't target 40 then you'll fail so you target your 70 right. you land somewhere in the middle of this right so that has always been my game mm. like you know like tap in the middle Okay. Uh, and you hit somewhere and reach it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, for me, uh, I was really upset because all my life, like my parents, like, you know, pushed me saying, I mean, they give that ima imaginary of you wanting to be an IAS officer, like wanting to be a civil servant, right? So from my 11th or 12th, I think I was preparing for civils. Um, but I mean, I, I just, uh, like, so uh, I think I did, after my graduation, I stayed in a job uh, and then I was preparing for it. And then I wrote it two times and both the times I failed. But that was like a reality check saying, you know, introspective of you being like trying to act smart, to trying to crack the system. There are systems you can't crack, right? Because uh, IAS requires like a one-year persistent study and you need to really go in-depth in subjects and you can't pick and choose. Like I, I, I hated geography and I never touched geography. 
but without geography you can probably write a prelims properly right so those are places where i have realized my limitations also saying you know i cannot go and crack that like i cannot do that like for example let me for mba entrance exams was happening i wrote cat i feel miserably because i have my math skills are poor so i just feel miserably over there uh but i, I mean but, but my for me is like you no know, like probably i'm just bad at looking at my failures and worrying over it too much uh, that i will just go to, i'll just try to find out okay what is the next option for me let me go to a mall right let me okay chaka is i went for government working experience let me go to something else in my life um so i'm not really like sat and cried over my failures uh, uh, as such it has always been about saying okay how do i move on from this how do i move on from that uh yeah but uh, i think uh, and when i was in class i was struggled because you see when you're working with a group they always always see you as a burden okay uh, they feel they are carrying you around uh, like though you might have given the inputs and everything but you are not doing any work you are there but uh, i mean i would always thank my classmates for being accommodative of me and helping me out for a lot of things so there is me a guy in my class uh, who I, i was bad at one finance paper and and you are one of them So he literally used to write the answer sheet and then he used to show it to me for me to copy in the exam. And he would wait for me to write the paper to write his next sheet. Right. So there are things like that uh, who had helped me, like you know, crack the system also. I wouldn't say that I did everything because of my merit or because of what I did, but also because I had people around me uh, who who took me by their side and have been what you call as inclusive about me uh, in their teams. Who has also been able to put me like where I am. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. so lot of it was your own initiative number 1 it was also you looking at the brighter part of it that okay if this does not work out it's probably not my cup of tea i need to look at something else where where i can bring in my strength right and third of course a support system of friends or somebody who were uh, you know uh, they realize that this is what you require as a push up or as a backup and then they helped you with that right uh, now you just mentioned mithun that uh, finance was something that you were weak in and yet uh, uh, in all your social posts i find you uh, really advocating financial literacy especially from a very young age so what is that and why do you really uh, you know very so strongly uh, insist upon uh, teaching young children from a very young age what financial literacy uh, what finance is all about or how to handle money why do you do that what is it about so i mean remember the crutch conversation we had right so when i was in school i started struggling with maths okay but i was actually good at maths but i thought i was struggling with maths because when you reach ninth standard or what you call as that particular age they make you write steps right i could always think i mean i am very good at mental maths but i am very bad at writing that steps to go from or solve for x or solve for y which are like not logical things for me right and i'm very really glad i never had to use pythagoras theorem in my life after college school but फाइन <laughs> it's not it's accounts mm. you have uh, what you call stock market finance you have a lot of mm. um and i didn't have a aptitude to learn like i was really smaller what i teaching in the class because in my head what i am thinking i'm going to finish this i'm going to work in a design company i'm probably going to work uh, in that space or in a branding company where i can implement my solution i'm not thinking of finance as a career 
But unfortunately for me, I ended up cracking a government exam uh, and then ended up working in a PS public sector bank, right? But that's, I, I literally cried. I literally cried in the first year of my work saying, I have no idea what they are saying here, right? I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, then I had like, like, but I was really good at like always finding out mentors in the right place. So I found a mentor at that place so who helped me understanding, okay, saying, you know, okay, he understood these are my skills, these are the things. So he said, like, look at finance like saying, uh, if you if you have to solve your own puzzle about it, how will you go about solving it? Uh, I think that kind of redirected to me into thinking about money in a different manner, saying, okay, if I have X money, well, put X money here, I'll put X money there. I'll probably borrow this to buy this asset. I'll probably do this. So when I started solving it for myself, it made a lot of sense. And I understood that this is not as complicated as people look at. Um, I used to even struggle saying which was debit side and which is the credit side, right? So even even though, I, like like you say, I'm like probably good at finances uh, when it comes to that part of it, when it comes to my company finances, I'm still a little clueless. Like I sometimes go to my charity account and tell ask stupid things. But that is that is part of it. You cannot buy everything in this space. Like, you know, mm-hmm. um, but what I realized is that, uh, like, at, at least in my house, there has always been an open discussion about money. Like, you know, my parents always will say, we're going to buy this asset, we're going to buy that, or we are in this much of debt. Uh, uh, and they had our, we had a noise in the house. Like, you know, we always had a noise to answer. And I always had enough pocket money because of the, all the incidents in my life that my mom always gave me enough pocket money saying, please don't ask other people and give me more trouble. They can have this money with you, right? So having that money uh, was also a fact that realizing that when you have money, I mean, you know how to invest in any not to operate. Uh, it gives you what you call as a head run from your peers. Like if you ask somebody who's starting investing at 16 or 17, you have 10 years by the time other people start thinking about money or starting investing. And by then you're building discipline because finance is not an easy journey. Like you cannot start investing tomorrow and say, I'm going to be like, you know, I'm going to make 10x in the next one year, right? You're going to make loss. And when you make loss, you probably get start panicking. You start realizing that you're not good for it or whatever it is. And then you probably just move out of that thing. But what you need is that persistence thing. It's like, you know, failing and succeeding, failing and succeeding until you figure out this is your finance, this is your investment thesis, this is how you want to work. But that is for you to look at money from an young age. And another thing I noticed about people with me is like the wrong image of money that parents put you in, right? Even my parents for that fact, they'll always say that being rich, that guy became rich because he did some illegal activity, he did something like that, right? Being rich is always looked down upon, right? And why do you need so much of money, right? I, if I have so much of money, I can create so much more impact. Like, no, that's my answer to it. So you don't need to look at money saying, I'm going to put it everything in a bank account or like, you know, lying over there or whatever it is. You can use it to drive more uh, impact in your life. Or you can retire early. Like, you know, why, why, do, why do somebody plan to work till 60? I probably want to retire by 45 and then see what I want to do with my life, right? But to do that, you need to really be smart about managing your finances. And that is the only one key skill needed in your life. Rest everything, like you know, what you're learning in a course, school, college, work, whatever it is, that you only want to get you from month end to month, or month first to month end. Right? Finance is the only thing that's going to go you from uh, all throughout your life and ensuring that you're in a good place. And having that relationship with money also. Like, for example, like you know, some people are afraid, oh, uh, you know, like uh, if you are worried about your paycheck, like, you know, like I, I remember that the trigger that I used to get, that SMS comes in the beginning of month saying, this much of money is credited to your account, right? And that is the only one SMS that you like in this entire month. Rest is in your head. Okay? But what's the point in having a relationship with money like that? Right? You need to be comfortable handing it out to someone. You should be comfortable about investing it somewhere. You should be invest, like uh, you should be able to say if my friend is starting a business and they put five lakhs on it. I mean that shows not just I'm putting money over there. I have some trust in that person. 
But for me to evaluate that guy's decision and probably help him out, I need to understand finance. Uh, I think that is from where that whole uh, thing of it came, uh, and I was able to luckily find that what you call is a very small space in that thing called behavioral finance, which is a merger of psychology and finance. And me having a background in psychology plus finance, uh, it kind of uh, made me look at like you know the behavioral heuristics, what kind of people mistakes people make, how do you nudge people into those behaviors. So that became like kind of my what you call as my hobby area, uh, where I went and specialized a little more further. that's so wonderful and i really i really agree with you there that uh, one money is something that we should not have a fearful relationship with number one number two the younger uh, age you learn handling money or what exactly buys you worth something that you should be happy about is something that's going to help you in the long run throughout your life it's as you rightly said it's not from paycheck to paycheck but how is how are you going to create that level of finance where you are comfortable and you are able to do what you want without really uh, being fearful all the time like what if my money runs out right so i i think that's a great insight and that's a great learning also like you know that finance is something that you need not necessarily be uh, having a degree into it or you started like you said you started with your own thinking where is my money going where is my money coming in from and where is my money being spent and learning and beginning from there so that's that's a great insight and yes you absolutely right the younger the person learns it at and uh, definitely and as we talk about the power of compounding so uh, if you start early you are going to be definitely rich by the time you reach, reach an age where you are able to uh, you know in a position to enjoy that wealth you create wealth for yourself right okay uh now you have also mentioned like you know so a part of it of course comes from the area where you like to explore new things but uh you have mentioned in your social post again i'm relying a lot on your social post because i enjoy reading them so uh, my listeners also will keep on thinking that why is she mentioning his posts so these are the linkedin posts that i'm talking about Uh, so you have uh, said that you built your websites and you built all your technology and although you did not have any background you don't have an engineering background or you did not have any high tech code uh, available to you so how did you do that what kind of skills were required to bring about uh, to kind of implement these things because uh, see like as an entrepreneur you don't have all the skills with you you need to have people and what if you don't have you know uh, such expertise available to you you said let me try it on my own so what skills did you employ how did you go right, about right. that um, so i think i have always been interested in design like i always had like a decently good design sense like even in college i used to design the school poster and everything right but something that i would say very openly that our arts education is missing in this country and even for psychology for that matter is teaching technical skills right If you go and check, uh, like I mean, APAs, skills required for 21st century psychologists, you will see a lot of tech skills, like cognitive psychology, like programming, tech, right? Um, and all these are coming from tech, which are not taught in any of our colleges. Right? And that is a crip, what you call as like you know, what they call a crippling factor that the art students always have in terms of competing with uh, somebody from a science or a tech background. Like for example, IIT Bombay has a cognitive science, I think, masters. But the reason why psychology failed and tech people who know very little about cognition probably crack that admission process is because they don't have this uh, analytical skills or what you call the programming skills with them, right? And when you get website design, it's actually see you know the front end like you and me, anybody can look at the front end and understand there is a video button, there is a camera button, there is this and everything. So that is a basic logic. Like that is an like analytical part of your brain which can say okay, this is how I want it to be structured. This is if I give to a user, this is how the user is going to use it. 
I mean, that's a user behavior. Hmm. So that skill is more with psychologists than with a tech guy, right? So what do you need? You need the skill to probably build the back end of it. How do you build a interface like this? Right. Initially, uh, I was uh, introduced into this something called no code movement. So it's a very popular around the world where they say that you know tech shouldn't be limited to just people with uh, like who are skilled to code. It should be accessible to anybody and anyone who can build a solution. Right. Uh, and then I started learning about different no code solution. So one of the most popular ones that everybody knows is called Wix. So people start making some website website interface, right? Yes. Uh, and when I started my company, I actually wasted 1.5 lakhs in paying a vendor who built me a WordPress site, which was really bad. Like, you know, like I couldn't even use it for my regular usage. Uh, and that mm. and that was when I realized, like, you know, the kind of exploitation that happens in this space also. Like, if I want a product to be built, mm. I need to go with a set of requirements. I need to be so clear in my head, which is very impossible when you are building a tech product because you are, you go through multiple MVPs, you go through multiple iterations, you go through multiple product journeys. How are you? How is my vendor expecting me to be clear about this thing in my head, right? Uh, and every time you go for him to probably change it or modify it into the version that you need, you're paying more and more money to that person, right? So I was like, why don't I go pick it up? Like, even if it is, I realized that okay, I don't need to build a what you call as an Uber or an Ola, which has a very really complex tech backend or a back infrastructure. I probably need to have a website where my parents can come and book a service and get. Uh, get the service at their home. So all I need is a website and a booking feature, right? So then I first started this. Mm. Then I started learning this thing called WordPress. So I learned about what that other guy was doing for 1.5 lakhs. I figured I could do it in like, learn it in like one week and do it. So I learned the WordPress part of it. Wow. Uh, then now I'm using this thing called Webflow. So Webflow has a little more, it's just drag and drop interface. If you have some understanding of saying, you know, this is how the design should look like, you have any number of templates from where you can copy the elements. You are really good at modifying the text, changing the images having the logic of understanding, like this is how it works, and then show it to your users. We'll test it and tell you that whether it works or not, right? It's mm-hmm. So uh, I think you should also learn about design thinking and human-centered design. Uh, if you are an art student, for me, even if you're not learning a tech skill, you learn learn how to apply design thinking and human design, human-centered design, because then you actually look at people's problems and then you're able to build solutions in a manner that uh, is a reflection of what they need, right? Uh, I think these are that is how I learned the tech part of it. But uh, I, and even I think like you know, when I started a YouTube channel, like I mean, we just ran it for like a year, and then I got bored of it and left. But I realized that you know I, I can okay pick up video editing, I can pick up audio. Editing. I think you can connect to that as well. Like you can know, the side. Mm-hmm. Uh, but until uh, see the problem here is in India is that people think we learn something and then it becomes the occasion, right? You always think of saying okay, this is a project that I want to do. This is what I want to finish, and then you build the skills to back it up. Right, uh, but uh, now I also learned how to do automation. Like you know, for example, there's a tool called Sapier. So if a client is booking on my website, uh, I can trigger a Gmail to go to him. Right. Uh, otherwise, what what will I, my person has to do? She has to take it in an Excel. She has to probably fill something. Then the email has to go. So you can automate the whole process by using any of the automating tools like Sapier or Automate.io or something like that, where you build a whole pipeline. Like the moment this comes, this goes to a Trello card. This goes to and is an email. This goes this. And you don't need any kind of a tech or programming skills for it. I mean, see, the people who build this products are wonderfully good tech guys. So I'm not saying recording or anything is bad and we, we still can't do what they are doing, right? You need to respect what they are. Mm-hmm. But any any of us can do that. Like I believe that in colleges, instead of teaching them to go and do some project and publishing a dissertation or a thesis, they should make them do a website and solve a real problem, right? And then these kids will learn how to do that. Um, and I think you know, that, that's how I would put it over there. 
actually mithun you know what uh, i believe that you know what generally happens is when we are in in our schools and college all that we learn is that we should wait for somebody to spoon feed you know uh, to get up and do something for your own self is something that we just don't learn at all you know we keep on waiting we want somebody to tell us what to do tell us how to do and you know so on and so forth but getting up and actually trying out things ki what works for me because it might be something that can be very popular but it might not work for me right uh, like uh, just to give this personal example like for even like podcasting i tried out several recording platforms as well but then i had to find the one that worked for me something that i was comfortable with if i had just taken the recommendations of other podcasters and they said okay we use this medium and this is the best uh, then probably i would have not found the best match had i not tried out uh, you know the several things that i felt was this is what i want in my recording and as you rightly said we are familiar with what looks uh, how it should be at the front this is what i want as my user interface so at the back end figuring out what goes in it it does not take rocket science it's not really rocket science to actually figure out what's and uh, again there are a lot of uh, apps there are lots of websites which are very helpful but you just have to be proactive in actually going to them and exploring what and how you can pick up and what can be useful to you right okay uh, so what uh, would you say today i mean my listeners are listening to you today and there are uh, of various age groups so if somebody wants to be a social entrepreneur what would you say what are the kind of skill sets they should develop or what are the kind of aptitudes or personalities that are Uh, that are very essential to be in this space. Right. Um, so uh, again, so I I do have a mentoring space in this where I mentor few social entrepreneurs. So something I keep telling people is that like you know this is something that somebody figured out like about me when I was doing a session uh, that uh, I am solving for the problems that I am going to face. Like you know, for example, me building uh, something on autism or ADHD is something that I have experienced, right? Or me right now wanting to build something in senior care or trying to solve that space is probably something that I see my parents, and then I see what problem they are going to face, and I am building the solution for it. So having that personal connect, I mean, it's like you cannot simply say, uh, like I think I had this, like I was saying this to you, saying you know I cannot do real estate tomorrow just because it will make me a tremendous number of money, right? Uh, you can. I mean, there's nothing wrong in it. Or if I see something really exciting, saying, uh, okay, if I start giving, uh, like you know, debit cards or credit cards to college students, this again a financial impact product. But I may not do it because I may not really connect in depth with it, right? So, uh, I mean, uh, my point, like they give me a scoring card by saying, if you get any idea for that matter and you want to start something, right? So the basic uh, request to that is you might have multiple ideas to chase, but you probably have one lifetime to do it. um and uh, and unlike unless you are like an ambani where you can just start, start like a business like left right and center you are probably uh, restricted to doing one or two ideas so you choose that one or two ideas which really makes a lot of meaning to you like which has a lot of meaning to you and then the second thing is that not having meaning to you doesn't mean it is a problem that it has a meaning for everyone like you know having a pet spa right like for example it might you your dog may need it your dog might enjoy it but not everybody might be ready to pay for it because it may not be their primary need or secondary need so also figuring out and talk going and talking to the community with the same kind of problems understanding their uh, issues that is the second phase of it where you learn how to empathize with them like so having that empathy is a key skill in when it comes to becoming a social entrepreneur and the third thing is that once you get that feedback from the community right you trying to build solution that are destined to fail 
So having that thing that saying, okay, whatever I am going to start today uh, may not work tomorrow, like no, or may not work with the audience, and then they will come back and do something. But if you think I built the perfect product, and then you go to the audience, and then they say, okay, this is not really working. This is not how it works. Any product for that matter will take three to four years of iteration to be like a good thing in this space. Uh, see, uh, I mean, I have a lot of my friends who are in assistive tech products, who are building robotic hands, who are building uh, sensory feedback devices, who are building uh, devices for the blind, right? But I see all of them failing with their customers. And some of them take it really to heart saying, you know, all my PhD, all my thesis, all my studies, uh, like I believe this would work, but uh, but market is just rejecting it. That may be the truth. So having that, um, uh, that acceptance to failure is also high, right? And another thing is that if you are looking to fundraise as a social entrepreneur, it's a huge challenge. And for me, when I started the insight, uh, I've always been very ethical about money. Uh, so I have never really asked, uh, like I've gone and pitched to different VCs and they all, like some of them like the idea, but when they tell me that this is the scale, this is the thing, this is the kind of thing that they're expecting, I probably back out of it, right? Uh, because I know for a fact I can't deliver that to them. Uh, and even now, uh, when I'm probably looking for funds, I will only look at the amount of money that can propel my business from X to A. I will not try to do like a startup where I will probably take 10x of the money with me and then do it. To be honest, that is a good way to do it because if you can raise money and then you have money in your back end, then you can try multiple things and fail. Right? So nothing wrong about it. But be ethical about, if you are ethical about your business, be ethical about the money that you are bringing into the business also. So that is something that was, uh, most people I've seen is that they struggle when they see a lot of money in the business. Uh, and because they don't know what to do with the money. right? And uh, that often leads them to failure. Um, and another thing is that always, uh, see, you're, you're solving one problem for your user. Tomorrow, like I said, I solve it for the school. And then I realize that they have a problem in home, right? So uh, when you are in the social enterprise space, don't try to look at the growth metrics. Like it's not having a million customers or a billion customers. You keep looking at saying, what are the other things in the value chain that I can solve this person for, for which this person will pay me more. Like if I start a senior care thing, I give them a meet. I give him uh, an emergency ambulance service. I give them an emergency this response service. So everything I'm able to price more, but I'm able to give everything uh, in one space probably at 10 or 30 people for say 300 or 400 customers but who are probably going to leave, like be with me till their lifespan it's not selling you one t-shirt and then exiting out of it i am serving you from your day till the day you die right or until the day you are able to stand by yourself when it comes to the disability space so it's a very long ltv that you have so my point is always look at the long-term value of your customer don't look at the number of customers that you can have come and show Right. I can build a two crore or three crore business by just having thousand customers in this way because of the LTV. Because every the thousand customers will buy from me every month. They are not going to go tomorrow and find an alternative. And for them to shift from me to another person is a huge challenge. So look at spaces where you can build the LTV out of it. Like you know, that's why I like I, if somebody comes and say I will sell t-shirts or bags or this thing for these kids to make them feel empowered and all. I said, like, they buy it once. They will not buy it from you tomorrow. So it may not be a long-lasting idea. It's a good business, but not a social enterprise. Right? Uh, another thing is figuring out how to reinvest the dollars. Like, I make uh, 10 lakhs or 15 lakhs. The first thing you have to invest in is in your employees. Because if your employees are not happy with you, they're not happy with you as a team. Um, uh, see, another thing is you can't pay the top of the dollar, so you're not going to get the top of the talent. I can never hire from Neymans. Uh, I can probably, I probably can't hire from the top college in Delhi. I have a certain set of colleges from where I can hire, right? The fact that, because that is the money that I can generate from the system, so you hire good human beings. Like, you know, people who believe in your value system, who can work with you, 
who look at the way they are looking at their life at the probably the start of the journey you hire those people and then you mentor them to the resource that you have so you must some money back into them so that you know they feel good that they are working for you and another thing is you start you investing it in different spaces like you know with any other person who starting something in the space like you you can be an angel investor without being that rich also you can invest 3 or 4 lakhs in somebody's venture and another in somebody's venture so right now i am working with a pipeline of starting uh, what do you call a center i mean i don't i don't uh, i don't want to start a center in bangalore because there are enough and more centers in bangalore so i don't want to start another autistic center in bangalore but i realize that there is a lot of dearth of centers in tier 2 and tier 3 cities Right. So I am working with people who left in like my organization and people who are outside, uh, and telling them you start in your place. I will help you mentor throughout the whole journey of setting it up over there, uh, and a reward of which you can give me like five percentage of whatever revenue is. So that way, that way I am like socially incentivizing that kind of a change. So I think though that is where you have your dollar going and creating multiple value chains. Uh, so I, I think that is one element that I see most people when they pitch social enterprise they miss it. They will talk about their business that creating a value. But reinvesting that to create more value is what, uh, what ultimately will make you feel like you know, okay, like you did this and the other person is doing this, uh, your support, um, and then that looks great, yeah. Madhuri, you have given beautiful insights into what goes into you know being and why social entrepreneurship is a little different from the normal entrepreneurship journey, and uh, so many beautiful tips you have given, and I'm sure my listeners are going to find it really, really useful. Uh, whoever is thinking about going into this field, so one last question to you. Uh, for being a successful entrepreneur like you mentioned a little while ago that you know most uh, most uh, people with adhd turn towards entrepreneurship but that is just one thing a person may or may not have that is not a necessary criteria so what according to you makes a successful entrepreneur you have already mentioned several characteristics in your earlier answer but just if you can just in a nutshell kind of to wrap this up ki what do you think are some of the successful attributes of uh, a successful entrepreneur yeah, um yeah, sorry there's a call between uh yeah um uh, for me uh i'm just thinking about like can you repeat the question i'm sorry <laughs> no worries i said uh, like you know you just mentioned several things that in the space of social entrepreneurship one should be looking at so for being a successful entrepreneur what are some of the attributes that one should be looking at uh, uh, uh having personally within I, you, or to I develop with this successful yet so technically i had two restarts within my business uh one is in the beginning of covid and everything was shut so we went into zero and that's when i just left the job uh, but i think like you know like i said the financial planning aspect had always kept me going when i know when i need to be frugal when i need to be spending and uh, and i always kept my overhead very low like i don't have an office i don't really like like like, like i don't have like a full time office like so, so many people coming and working over there right so um, uh, and even when it comes to most of my work is very automated uh, like people are running from it has been a remote organization For a long, long time, and I used to have a clinic, but that also like we let go due to during COVID. But again, there my overhead was very minimal. So I think if you're when you're starting, the key thing is don't try to flash it. Uh, see, you can flash yourself. Put you out there, talk about things that you're doing, tell people that you're trying to do this, try to do that, but don't flash your business, right? Don't try to build a uh, like you know like show like put a flex that you should spend one crore two crore. Try to create a clinic that you spend so much of money unless that is your uh, like unless you're building like a clinic or something where people are have to come in and that is your value proposition. Then it's a different ball. But otherwise, try to see 
uh, how you can always like be frugal about what you're starting it up. Right? So that is a key thing. I don't know whether I'm like like I'm not very sure. I'm, I'm like I'm meant to give the success advice of it. Uh, but what I can say is that how to persevere and be there, like you know, that that's what I can promise. Um, so every time that we had to get shut, I mean, I like like I always go to my whiteboard and said, okay, how do we do these things differently? Right? How do we go and do this differently? So second year they had home care built. So second year again they shut. So home care was also shut because you're near lockdown. You can't do home care also, right? Then how do you keep paying your people? Sometimes you have to let go of your people. Sometimes you have to. Uh, figure out way in which you then you started online, like right? we started online uh, classes, we started NIOs, we started a lot of those things. So it has always been a constant way of figuring it out and being there, like being perseverant about it uh, in this space. Uh, and another key thing is having, having see, for example, uh, if you are doing a regular business, right, you see your competitors as your competitors. Uh, I have had experience of people stealing my idea, what I do at Insight, uh, and then doing a similar thing uh, at a different place. I probably will talk to them, but I will not go and try to like them or you know run behind them or do something like that. But I rather see that there are a lot of people along with me in the journey. Like today, if somebody asked me, like you know, say uh, like yesterday, I think somebody was asking for Women's Day. They wanted some people who can like you know uh, who they wanted to award or do some video report and all those things. I was surprised that I could send 10, 15 people who are doing really good work in the field. Because I was in this field and I'm I reach out to people I talk to them uh, and then give without the expectation of taking anything back right if somebody and sometimes i've seen people getting uh, like you know, offended by that saying you know okay uh, does this guy have any other agenda by helping me out like this is i don't really think through it i realize that mentorship is always about giving and you know getting it back from someone that today i might uh, need some kind of a support for doing something i just go i, I don't i don't even have a buffer i just ask the other person like bro like are you doing something like this can you give me this information or uh, are you doing something like what this? Can I join you as part of this particular venture? So being, uh, having the ability to ask and learn from the people around you is a very key thing when in, in this particular space, right? Um, and initially, like I, I I didn't start here. So initially, I used to be very opposed towards a lot of people. Like when I started, I had a lot of fighting with the system because you know this was very uh, very NGO-centered space, right? And they started blaming, saying you guys are trying to make money out of it, you guys are trying to do this out of it. Uh, I said like, why don't you go do it? In the way you are doing it, right? And then if you can make money, if you can run it without the kind of costing or something that I am having it, you can do it, right? So um, that has been my input to it. But then from that point, now I come to a point where I realize that, see, okay, you have a particular judgment of what social entrepreneurship is, uh, or I don't come and tell you saying, like, like say, I don't use fancy words like saying I'm trying to make a huge difference in the world, or I don't have the vocabulary to make it look that kind of a thing. But I would probably do my work and then keep going on that particular path, right? Uh, and uh, another thing I've noticed is, in, particularly when it comes to social enterprises, most of them are coming from tier two, tier three cities, people who are coming from uh, uh, disadvantaged backgrounds who want to probably do something for their own community. And also, when they look at their community, their community don't have people to be a role model or uh, somebody who can help them into that particular journey. Right. Uh, and the other part of you is that I didn't want to be a mentor. I'm a very bad mentor, to be honest. You know, considering all the things that I am, I'm very bad as a mentor. But I realized that I need to be there because even if I have to, can offer 25 percentage to them, that makes a lot of meaning to them to figure out. Somebody with ADHD wants to start a business, right? What is his? Uh, like he would have a lot of thoughts about them, a lot of limitations about his thing. May not be confident about stuff. So you just telling them, go put it out there and feel, man. It's just a hobby. Like, just go put it out and feel. Right. So that, that, that is all that you need to do. Yeah. Wow. So it's it's been 
really wonderful talking to you Mithun and I I haven't realized how the time has flown away and it's been a great pleasure talking to you thank you so much for joining me today so listeners today we have had so much insight so much knowledge and so much information that we have gained from our uh, from our conversation with Mithun and I'm sure you also will learn a lot from it so till we meet next time Keep tuning, keep on listening to Pit Stop Conversations available on all the podcasting platforms like Spotify, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast and many, many more. So keep listening. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you.